Welcome back to Dev Dive episode 18. As always, I'm your host, Nighthawk. I'm joined by my co-host, Riot Legend Larry. And we have two guests on today for the show about user experience in games. Welcome, Vivi and Chris. I hope you can tell which is which. <laughs> <laughs> Do we so, get to choose now? Or? Yeah, yeah, no, you have to you call it out. We have to answer each other's. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gotcha. It's going to be a fight to the death, I'm sure. <laughs> so let's start My off with... Let's start off with introducing both of y'all. Uh, Vivi, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, I am currently a UX designer for Phoenix Labs, um, but I actually started my UX journey um, as a coordinator at Riot Games. From there, I started to um, basically uh, support um, any UX needs in uh I would say um, teams that didn't have a lot of UX support. Um, and so from there, I started pretty much like learning um, on the job, like how to um, how to do this, gain a portfolio, um, interviewed, got hired as a full-time UX designer there. And then from there, I worked most closely with um, creative development programs. So like um, narrative projects, um, I would say that, um, yeah, in the span of like five, six years um, at Riot. And then now um, I work more in the game space uh, with Dauntless as my main game project. Yeah. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Larry is also uh, Vivi's husband. So welcome to the show, finally. <laughs> We've been meaning to have you on for a long all time. Those, but all those, all those times that I talk about Vivi. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's Vivi. <laughs> that's Vivi. Uh, so how about you, Chris? What's your story? Uh, it's a much longer one than that. Um, the <laughs> let's see, I got started <laughs> a long time ago. I'll try to make this as short as possible, honestly. Um, I got started a long time ago. Uh, I was doing, I was actually working as a graphic designer and uh, not at the same time as a coder. And because I could speak both those languages, I was uh, I was pulled into this field of what was then called information architecture. <laughs> And it started to grow and finding all the stuff that was sliding through the gaps. And uh, I got to work on a lot of fun, innovative things, physical products. And I got to work with uh, Lucent Technologies on this voice-based phone browser, the first one, which is since now like the basis of Siri, Cortana, Alexa, all that stuff. Uh, so while there, I moved over to the West Coast where I got to work on some fun stuff. Uh, let's see. Uh, I worked on designing medical devices for a while. That was really fun and surprisingly video game inspired. <laughs> uh, from there, I moved down to uh, San Francisco where I worked with a company called IDEO, which is one of those companies that people in the field know, but outside the field, no one's heard of, but they design a lot of the stuff behind the stuff that people know, like they designed the first Macintosh, the Swiffer Sweeper, brain surgery tools, all this stuff that other companies get a lot of progress from. Uh, from that, I started gathering off on my own and freelancing around the world doing fun stuff like uh, be designing experiences in uh, Tokyo for a big adventure that happened to um, working with NASA, working with Google. Uh, uh, oh yeah, one of the cool things in there that makes me sound way cooler than I actually am is that I got to work with Stephen Hawking and designing his wheelchair, the interface that he uses to talk. Um, yep. <clears throat> 
then I started up with an agency. I got to uh, design a lot of augmented reality things. I'm skipping over so much stuff that's actually video game related. <laughs> I've been on the front page of the App Store like 10 times for various things. I got to work with like Sesame Street. I designed a an AR dollhouse for Mattel. Um, I designed a basketball for Wilson, a smart basketball that tracks everything you do and tracks and helps coach you to become a better player. From there, I worked at Riot for a few years uh, where I met Phoebe and Larry. And uh, yeah, I got to work on various games that I still know all the code names for. And <laughs> as well as mostly within Riot itself and designing the company. Uh, and yeah, I've gotten to do a lot of other freelance things since then as well. Nice. Yeah, you really have had a, a very storied career. Your LinkedIn must be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> they have a limit on it. I can't just cram it all in there. <laughs> I haven't I haven't reached that limit. I didn't know there was one. I have a pretty short career myself. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's actually fun. I get to work in a lot of fields, but I I think of myself as doing one thing really well. I just know how to apply it to anything. I like that. I like people who can do a lot of different things. I think it's pretty useful. I'm not in the game industry myself, but I think it's pretty useful to be in games and to be able to wear a lot of different hats because that does seem to be a requirement at some of these studios. Yeah, especially the smaller ones. Mm -hmm. All right, so this is going to be um, sort of a layperson's perspective at UX question because I think a lot of people who might be listening to this podcast might not know a lot about it. We sort of live in a bubble where, I mean, uh, Larry is married to Vivi, so he obviously gets a lot of UX uh, experience from that second hand, um, and you're in UX, so you know that. But from me and Larry's perspective, uh, we don't even know exactly like what a good definition of UX would be. So let's start off with with what would be your definition of UX, like if you had to explain it to your parents or somebody who had no idea what this is about. This is actually one of my favorite questions that I like. I, I ask other people in the field this because no one gets the same answer. And I always hear hilarious <laughs> things like, I'm a professional napkin sketcher, or uh, I'm a hunter and gatherer of research, and <laughs> stuff like that. It's it's always funny. I mean, it really, for me, just comes down to the experience someone has whenever they're doing something, uh, be it a product or a service or uh, an event or anything like that. How do you make it so that it's you're defining their experience really well? If that is an interface or if it's an interaction with someone or whatever, it can be a very broad thing. <laughs> so how about you, Vivi? How would you explain it? Um, this is really funny because like I, two years ago, I was trying to explain this to Larry's mom <laughs> with a huge language barrier. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it came down to, um, we were looking at their, uh, is it neighbor? The mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and there was a really interesting um, interaction that was happening in their GPS system where it would start um, ringing when uh, you were going over the speed limit in the area. <laughs> and I found that really interesting because, you know, not everyone is looking at uh, a phone um, and trying to have this, you know, while you're driving, right, to know that you're over the speed limit. But the sound was enough to be like, oh, I'm actually over and so I was trying to explain to her that understanding that that's a problem, that going over the speed limit, right, and safety, and then coming up with a solution is essentially user experience. 
um, and that um, it's not necessarily the the interface, uh, but it's the interface, how the, the interface um, communicates with the system underneath, how I interact as a user with that interface, um, the fact that there's audio, the fact that it's on a phone, the fact that there's, um, you know, internet, you know, connections that that's going to disrupt that message, et cetera, et cetera. That that's basically like literally your entire experience while you're trying to interact with something. And it's not just the UI. Yeah. Um, that that's UX. And it was really interesting to have that conversation. And that's kind of become my, my example to explain what I do. Um, also with my family, because there is a language there, uh, a barrier there um, between English and Spanish. Um, and how I speak better about UX in English than in Spanish. And so therefore, I tried to use that as an example. Um, more uh, a little bit differently, um, because I think that my definition changes also based on the um, environment that I'm supporting because a GPS is very functional first. Um, I find that Gaines UX is a little bit different in the sense that you want to solve for functionality, but you also want to kind of find a balance between that and in a game experience that you want people to have and walk away with. And mm difficulty might be a little uh, difficulty might be a little bit um uh okay if that matches the intended experience that you want players to have at the end of the day but you want people to walk away with having an intended experience um and if the systems that you've put into place support that thesis then overall that that's a good experience yeah and I think that's something think coming from from a layperson's perspective, like you were sort of hinting at, the biggest misconception about UX and UX design um, is that a lot of people come into it thinking like, oh, it's just they make UIs and they make um, like they make the website, the top bar, the navigation bar, and stuff like that. Um, so I think that's it's really great to explain to people who maybe have that misconception that yeah, it's not just about that; it's about the second you enter a site, the second you enter a game, the second you enter any experience, um, the UX designer is at work. They're cultivating that experience that you're having throughout the entire thing. And I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit later in the talk, but I'm sure you guys work closely with game designers, with um, blanking on the top of my tongue, but a lot of different other areas of the company to make sure that this UX experience actually happens properly. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, to... Oh, oh sorry. Point, Go ahead, I think what's, it's really important to... That, yeah, like, whenever... Uh, one of the things that I've heard a lot is whenever something is put out in the world, it has been designed. Whether or not it's been intentionally designed or not is a different thing. And what experienced designers really step in and start doing is uh, where inside a lot of corporations in the world, the, whenever a product gets made, it they kind of chug along until someone decides, oh, I want a promotion. So they just kind of like grab a thing and they shove it through the process to get out there and drop it on the world. And that's when it finds out. And what we do is run it through all those tests and start trying all the different variations so that whenever we start narrowing down, we know that when we get something out there, it's something that people actually want. It satisfies a need and people will actually, it'll be successful. So this, this, that was uh, actually a pretty good answer to the question I was about to ask, but I'll ask it anyway because I want to hear, <laughs> want to hear if the answer changes at all. Um, why, do, why is good user experience design so important? Like, why is this 
need to be a thing at pretty much every company who's making something. I mean, I think that if you have a bit, first impressions of products is very important. And if you don't have a good impression on the product, what's making you, um, I guess, what's enticing you to come back and, and try over and over um, the same product. And I think uh, in games, it's a little bit different because I think that um, core, like very strong core gameplay loops can bypass, like, I guess, bad UX. Um, you can argue that some of the earlier, like, I, I mean, not to like try and try and figure out how to have a careful conversation here without like saying this is bad UX or anything like that, because we as an industry have gotten better on UX over time. Um, but there has been like, you know, let's say like 10, 20 year ago games that still are uh, that haven't really changed that still people play to get today. Um, and I would argue that the game is as a, as a concept and as a core, uh, the opportunity or the proposition of that game is so strong that the UX is, um, I don't want to say negligible, but it's just people uh, tend to tolerate it better um, than um, something like today's world where games are coming in and out every day there's something new and be and first impression is very high like it needs to meet a specific uh, quality bar or else people are moving on to the next uh i guess content offering and so um if you want to be a successful company that you want to have successful products that are actually solving player problems or people problems and you want to be doing it in a way that you're ensuring that people are going to continuously come back to your product over time or continue or that you're solving, you know, the right problems um, as opposed to just get quickly there, um, not validate um, assumptions and unfortunately not deliver the right uh, player experiences. Yeah. Um, so from a business perspective, it's extremely important because that's what keeps companies afloat. And then from a player perspective, um, bad experiences cause bad pain and increase player churn, which then means that people leave. And... I'll take a pause for just one second. I have to restart my Discord because I have an audio issue. I didn't want to cut you off in the middle of your thing. So two okay. seconds, guys. Bum -ba -da -da. Great. Ben's back, so I guess we can't. <laughs> shit talk no more fun <laughs> sorry guys let me turn on my camera there we go yeah i don't know what's going on with my meter i guess this is always how it is though <laughs> so hopefully that didn't break up the flow too much but um yeah vivi had a really great answer to that and i'd like to hear if chris had anything to bounce off of it or sort of go his own way with that yeah i mean i, I think she covered a lot of great ground there it's it's really true uh i think what what you started getting into that gets really interesting to me is how it's different from <clears throat> how designing for games is different from designing for everything else because there's a lot of catchphrases that people think of like you know ease of use is it only so many clicks to get in there and a lot of that stuff is uh, almost irrelevant when it comes to games because you don't want a, a game to be super easy to play and just like click and you're done <laughs> you win <laughs> you want it to provide uh, resistance at the certain times and that's the experience are you providing the right kind of resistance at the right times? Are you providing clues at the right points so people will be able to figure things out on there? Are you, but not too much, uh, those right levels on there so that you're really getting inside their head and really figuring that out the entire time. And 
and not just for one person, which is the key of it too, is that a wide variety of people will be playing these games. So how do you make it so that, you know, someone who's new to the genre is going to be able to figure it out really quickly? How do you make it so that someone who's a pro steps in and isn't bored by the game? How do you make it so that it scales really well to to cater to all kinds of different people? It's really yeah. important. And I think um, just to step in with the layperson's perspective again, something that me and Larry joke about a lot, and I think we've talked about it with Vivi a little bit too, is most people don't really notice good user experience just because it's so seamless but a lot of people can notice even if they can't put their finger on it they notice bad user experience they notice bad ux because if you ever started through a game or went to a website and you're just like oh god this is just such a pain to do even the simplest thing like opening my inventory and doing this or trying to get to the shopping basket why like why is it so hard that's part of the reason why user experience is so important because those experiences you may not be able to tell like exactly what's going wrong, but more than likely somebody messed up during their the UX process because of this. It's really true. In a lot of ways, it's kind of like the 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 goalie problem from soccer, which is that like if the if the team does great and the team wins, then the goalie gets no credit. But if if something goes wrong, the goalie <laughs> takes all the blame. <laughs> yeah, that's oh, a man. really good analogy. That, that reminds me of uh, like the the balance team at Riot Games, where they just get so much garbage for for all the people <laughs> blaming them for bad balance. When in in reality, the game is pretty well balanced most of the time. <laughs> there are outliers, of course, but of course, um, ups and downs. Ups and downs, of course, and that's that's almost by design in a game like that. So we talked about this a little bit. Uh, in our brief introductions, but I wanted to take a step back and talk about how you both got your start in the field in a little more depth. So we'll start with you, Vivi. Uh, when did your interest in UX actually start? And like, what has your career specifically for that looked like so far? Really interesting, because um, when Kingdom Hearts 2 came out... <laughs> <laughs> going back a little ways <laughs> i have to go back i have to um I, I gotta mention disney and kingdom hearts in some way shape or form um no but when that game when that game came out and i was watching the intro cinematic for obviously the second game it, it sparked that's the moment that i can see in my life that i was like i want to work in game development back then i my my whole world was around i want to make players feel what i'm feeling today right now in this instant by watching this i translated that into arts and um, animation and 3d modeling which is what where my path as um in the academic world you know started was i was a 3d modeler and um an animator and the and and that's where i completed my bachelor's it wasn't until I started hitting my master's that I was like, wait a minute, this has nothing to do with, well, not that it doesn't have anything to do with emotional design, but what do I want to do? How do I want to, how do I get back to conveying emotions and like having players feel a thing that I've made and stuff like that. And actually back then I didn't have a very good support system that knew one new UX and that could point me in that direction. Um, but I did have a very strong, um, a uh, professor that like basically was like, I think what you're looking at is more on a psych psychology and like UX research. Um, and so that started to uh, peak an, an interest in that area, which then led me to player experience at Riot, 
and the idea that Riot um, as a company was focusing on player experience first. I didn't really know what that meant like seven, eight years ago, but I liked what that sounded like and it sounded like a step in the direction of what truly my goal was to be as a professional in the industry. And then once I actually entered uh, or had the opportunity to work at Riot, um, I was able to absorb about, you know, things like UX design, user research, you know, data analytics, like literally all these different like disciplines, at least within the realm of what back then was player um, player experience as a, as a company org structure thing. That's where I met Chris. And so like through that, I was able to understand things like, oh, um, this is what it means. This is bigger than UI. You know, I, I was very hesitant at first too. Like I was like, I don't want to just do UI work. Um, and I think that comes from this sense of like wonder and wanting to create like a, an, an, an experience and essentially get an emotion out of you um, for what I create. And I think that also comes back from past experiences at Disney World. I mean, like Disney's a very important, um, I guess, event in my life, being able to go to the theme parks, learn about the Disney Imagineering like principles and like just like absorb like how they uh, design at a theme park level and how they convey emotions as you're walking through different points of um, of this like, you know, physical landscape. And so, um, and I look at that and I say, how can I do that in a digital world? How can I then make moments for people to interact and, and have an experience and emotion, whatever that may be? So that's kind of the work that excites me. It can lead later into more game design work. It can lead more into UI work. It really depends on what, what I'm trying to do and what I'm trying to convey um, or what the, what the outcome I want players to have. And so um, when I look at that, uh, you know, it's something like that. It's, I would say that really like the combination of like video games and Disney Imagineering are like the core of why I do what I want to do. And they're like basically like my two little passion, like things that are collide, that collide. And I always try to find areas of opportunity where they can collide again and then I can you know in you know in tinker and like try to figure out like how I can de design uh delightful experiences for players yeah and I love how you touched on um the Disney example because I actually have that written down in the doc later I wanted to talk about yep like how Disney well I don't want to get too much into it right now but I, I do want to talk about like how <laughs> Disney and theme parks in general do design uh experiences like that because I do think that it has a, a big bearing on this discussion uh, but before sure. we get into that, uh, Chris, how about your? How about you? Uh, when did you start being interested in UX, and what does your career in that specifically look like so far? Man, that's a really difficult question for me, honestly, because it was a very gradual thing for me. Like I said, like started off doing graphic design, doing coding, <clears throat> picking up things here and there, and like it slowly came to be. Uh, while I was there, I'm lucky enough to be one of the early people who were who was doing that. I was, yeah, I remember designing and coding CD-ROMs and, and like seeing CD magazines and stuff like that that were really futuristic at the time, but were just awesome. And uh, as that went, I just kind of got more and more involved in that. Every time something came up, I would, I would try to get on those projects and start doing things like that. Um, and there's a bunch of little random things that I got to do along the way that got me closer and closer to it. I remember 
just from people like, oh, this is a cool project. Like, oh, how can I get on this to start doing things like that and making sure to like, hey, I'll just, I'll help out. I got some spare time. I'll do stuff like that. And I even started getting involved in volunteering in organizations uh, that are now like some of the biggest uh, global organizations for the field. But at the time, they were a little mailing list that I was involved in that was really fun just because people cared about it so much and there weren't many people that did that. Whereas now it's showing up in like, top five professions on magazines and stuff like that. It's really cool to see. <laughs> awesome. Um, I, I think I realized I never asked this, or if I, if you said I must have been uh, miles away. Where do you actually work right now? I don't right now. Honestly, I've been doing, uh, so I've been doing freelance for a little while now since I left my last full-time gig. Um, been working on a lot of really fun, crazy projects from, big experiential things, people taking over hotels to give these immersive experiences to helping out with a um, blockchain cryptocurrency based mm. city that they're building in Nevada that is decentralized governance and they're planning on having an esports arena and all kinds of fun stuff that's going to be fun. I find really fun, innovative new things and find a way to attach myself to it. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds really fun that that I never even heard about. This. Is this like the the cryptocurrency thing? Uh, city is that a um, announced thing, or is that sort of just like it's being developed? Uh, both. It is announced. Yeah, the I think the governor as well as the mayor of Reno both did big launch things for it. It's it's honestly a huge project. It was fun going out there and driving around, seeing like horses, like <laughs> herds of horses. I don't know what you call a group of horse. Herd, like going I think around. it's herds. A herd. Yeah, heard of horses. And then a winnie of horses. Yeah, uh, (laughs) uh, and you get to see because like the uh, the Tesla Giga factory is there. One of the Google big server centers is there. Some other big factories, and they're all inside the city, and it's just growing, and it's really cool to see. It's amusingly not the first smart city that I've worked on (laughs) over the years. (laughs) Wow, I never even heard of that. I have to look into that. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, who knows if it's going to succeed or anything. Either yeah. it's going to change the world or be a huge flop. Either way, <laughs> it's fun. It sounds fun either way. <laughs> so that that pairs well. I think you just answered the question that I was about to ask was um, <laughs> this, this like, in your experiences so far, in your career so far, what are, like, some of the standout moments that you've had where you're just like, wow, this is really cool. I get to work on this project or I get to do this. there's been a lot of fun ones the amusing ones to me are the ones that i didn't i didn't think anyone else would care about like when i was at intellis when i got to work with stephen hawking and i got to work with brian green and i was briefly a theoretical astrophysics major in college and so i was nerding out on this and i loved it and loved talking to these people but i never brought it up after that because i never thought anyone (laughs) cared and i think the moment that it actually hit me was actually when i was at riot in orientation with larry and (laughs) and someone asked for like oh it's a crazy fact about you and i was like oh yeah i remember that thing and so i mentioned the stephen hawking thing and everyone just kind of stopped and went like you what (laughs) it's like oh i guess other people care about that too it's cool (laughs) i remember Um, thinking what's he doing here (laughs) (laughs) it's also been the way that larry introduces chris to any social circles i'm like "Tell tell him the thing I always, that's one of the first things. I'm like, hi, this is my friend Chris. Chris, tell him the thing. 
It's always so much nicer when you have somebody to brag for you when you can bring them in and be like, <laughs> <laughs> comes off yeah. way better. Um, how about you, Vivi? I know you worked on some a lot of cool stuff at Riot over the years, and now you're starting to work at some pretty interesting stuff at Phoenix. So, do you have any standout moments so far? Actually, so I worked a little bit on store when it got redesigned into. Um, so it got visually redesigned from while it was in the Air client, and then it got ported into the current client of today. So I was involved from a shadowing and mentoring perspective there. And then from there, I transitioned to player support and I worked on some internal tool stuff there. I would say my my favorite piece that I worked on was actually when I transitioned over to the like creative development uh, organization and worked on the Runeterra map. Um, that was a really cool and interesting um, project just because um, we wanted players to essentially learn more about the world of Runeterra and um, establish it as like a living, breathing place in their brains, right? Um, and so we were just trying to explore with how to do that in a very interactive way. We have a lot of, you know, uh, we used to have a lot of stories and like comics and like video and, and, and all that's basically tons of rich media. How do we position it in a way that maybe promotes learning about this world and also um, provides spatial context to where the events of this place is happening, you know, they're happening so that uh, the model, mental models are actually more um, properly, like, you know, correct. <laughs> like what's happening in the world Rutera now feels a little bit more real because literally I saw that, you know, in this comic, this happened here, but then now I see that in this story, this happened here and like all these things and how they connect can actually even promote things like theories and stuff like that. And so it's, 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 it was a fun project and then it was reinforced uh, after, you know, when it was received by players and then seeing it still be a tool um, used by um, some content creators when they talk about the lore of Runeterra and so um, and then I remember um, before I switched companies uh, internally at Riot being able to see that as a tool for facilitating conversations about the world of Runeterra so being able to see like conference rooms with like the map and then you know them talking about like you know whatever lore project thing and so that was um, that felt good yeah um, oh and, sorry sorry <laughs> and then in League um, the um Preseason update with the rise of the elements uh, and the dragons, like that was um, a little bit of uh, league work that I got out before I left, and so that was um, that was actually another fun project for sure. Um, I would say that the the feature that I'm currently working on at Dauntless is a fun project. Unfortunately, I can't talk about it, <laughs> but um, it is a project. It's a very meaty chunk. It is not necessarily often uh in experience where you just jump in to a new company and you're going to be shipping something in the like first few months um and this one is i could at least say that um the name of the feature um is called uh well it used to be called friendship course it's now called slayer links and it's essentially a way to um, have people play with their friends that sounds really awesome I wanted to go back so a little a bit to the social experience and that's like a whole new monster for me. Um, how to engage, <laughs> like 
make it so that it's fun for players to play uh, with their friends. Do you do you have to refer to all uh, like problems that you're solving as monsters because you work on Dauntless? Is that, is that a requ- requirement? Sorry, Players behemoths. And behemoths. Yes. <laughs> you have to do it in a growly voice. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I yeah, I wanted to bounce back to the the Legends of Runeterra thing because, or sorry, not Legends of Runeterra. That's the game, the the Runeterra map thing. Um, because yeah, you can really see how Riot used that as like a base to work on expanding the world because they've they've been focusing on that for for the last year or so, really, really, really hard, and you can see using that as a base they've started to come out with a bunch more comics the the show that's going to be coming out soon um expanding the world through legends rune terror and all the cinematics we got through that so yeah it's really awesome to see that they they spent a lot of time and and resources reinvesting into the actual world of uh league of legends and and uh Val- or valorant sorry i almost called it valorant which i <laughs> i can i might go off on a mini rant on that because i really don't like that they named a, a game on Valorant. Yeah, Valorant. they named they named <laughs> yeah, the game that, that the one game in their series so far that has nothing to do with League of Legends. They named it after the the continent that League of Legends is set on. So, um, yeah, sorry, that just makes me a little upset. <laughs> That's bad UX. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, I I think that um it, for. I, I think what what's good is that it not only it it fulfilled um, the needs of I guess rioters to um, better work on like well not better work but like probably like understand like where where all the chess pieces are happening in the world like from a narrative perspective and how things like are moving um, so that you can potentially um, position the story to go into multiple directions right um and 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 potentially like you know new new things you know can come from that um at the same time um internal you know externally to players it's you know it's essentially a reference tool for people to uh use um and as you're reading a story you can say like oh look like they mentioned this location. I have no idea where this is. But when I go to the map and I see this location and then I see that a, a different a champion has been in this other area, you can start creating like, you, you know, theories around whether or not these characters could meet. And that could be actually fun. And then from a developer's perspective, if we, I, I would argue that if you see um, an interest in something like that, it could open up um, paths for you to explore those kinds of stories because we see that there is a, a an interest in that direction. So why not, right? So um, being able to, um, I guess, facilitate like n- you know a way for it, like people to be more interested in, in and discover uh, things that they didn't know, and um, and for the potential of more content coming out the door for them is it, it's definitely a thing that we've we thought about too as we were making it actually my, my favorite thing about that <laughs> of that whole uh project was when we were working on like the wireframes because when we were talking about like the theories and stuff like that um um i will always remember this because i have this still in my wireframes it's totally not part of like 
anywhere out <laughs> public. But um, when we were uh, we were deconstructing Darius's like a Blood of Noxus comic, and we were trying to sh like show that this story actually doesn't happen in Noxus. It happens also in Ionia. It also happens like in the water, like in between Noxus and Ionia, and then also like where these things are like kind of like happening. Right. And to to pitch this idea as like a way for us to facilitate like the discovery of new content. I may not particularly have been inspired to read the comic, but if I look at the map and I see that Darius was like, for the lack of a better term, baby making with uh, like, you know, <laughs> and we have like this spicy scene here that could be like enough for me to be like, oh, what's this? And then dig deeper and then learn about the comic and then that rabbit holes into like learning about the, the champion baby or making, learning. Yep. Yeah, That's baby making But that became like the thing that we were always, we had always a screenshot of Darius with Quiletta. <laughs> Quiletta, right? Like, <laughs> as much as possible. <laughs> that was that was actually my next question on the doc. Uh, so how does baby making actually work? <laughs> Since you wrote the book on it, I've, I've, I've read about it. I've done some some research, but uh, really, it's all theoretical still. I think. Yeah, I don't think anyone's really delved into that very very well. It's definitely not a, a, an entire genre of entertainment about it. I have to say, I, I know Vivi put a ton of work in on that, on the world building, making sure that all came together. And it's it's so fascinating for me, still seeing to this day, like, like uh, huge like posts go up on Reddit with people talking about like, oh, I just noticed this on the card art of this, and then this, and then this pulls together into this, and actually ties into the lore like this. And seeing these things, it's so fascinating seeing that it is being thought of on this, because I remember like going through and talking to artists about like, oh, is this thing in there to imply that? And they're like, oh, and they start like making it bigger and better and it's so cool to see how everything ties together. It makes me go back to when I was a kid, I used to love reading these basically choose your own adventure books, but they were a step up from that. They were like RPGs, like uh, Lone Wolf mm -hmm. and Cub and, and stuff like that. And ones that actually carried, like you had inventory and hit points and they would carry through multiple books. And it was so great. But the thing was like the first page on them would always be a big map. And you could start seeing like, oh, and sometimes I'd actually like trace around to see where I was going and all the choices I would make and it brings so much more to it. It just grounds you into the story. I mean, like, actually, some of the most popular IPs in the world have very well-established maps, like uh, Lord of the Rings. Like, we referenced Lord of the Rings. We referenced um, Game of Thrones. Um, we referenced, like, a couple of different, um, you know, even, like, World of Warcraft. Like, you know, so, like, there is, that helps contextualize the world for people. And so, um, and what we were seeing was that there was this, uh, a, a very, like, uh, there was discrepancies in, like, how people were uh, understanding our world. It was very fractured, like, and we had a original concept of what the world was, you know, when the game came out. And then that evolved after, after many years of our game also evolving and our lore evolving as well. So, but we weren't surfacing that in a visual way for players to follow that along and so as a result you would see across like you know reddit and social like just social media in general all these different types of you know player made maps of what runeterra would look like and there were nowhere near close to i mean there's some areas that were pretty close and then there were a lot of areas that were really wrong and so 
we started seeing that as a need to, you know, to solve that problem for people. And I would say that as a company, I, I would argue that we were also very um, wary about putting stakes in the ground and saying these events happen in this X, Y, and coordinate kind of thing. Um, that was actually quite a bit of a, a, a challenge for us to overcome um, as a team to say, like, this is okay for us to do. Um, this is not going to cause any player pain or um, block us from doing X and Y. Um, so, and yeah, I was going to say like that, those were really interesting challenges that we were um, facing for sure. Yeah. And you definitely see that, right? Right. Like the longer you take to fix a problem like that, the more of a problem it's going to be down the line because you start having people, like you said, who have, they start forming those conceptions in their head. Like, this is what everything should look like. And it's, it's some of the reason why um, some people don't like, uh, this is a bit of a tangent, but don't like movies about books or like audiobooks even, because it ruins their conceptions on what this thing should be. Like it, it, a lot of the arguments I have about, or my friends have about against audiobooks are like, oh, that's not what Hermione sounds like, or that's not what so-and-so sounds like. And it translates over to the movies, maybe not as much because movies are a bit more of a curated experience where you, you just get that and that's it. Uh, there's not much room for imagination, but um, yeah, that's what made, it made me think of when you're, when you're talking about the, the player made maps where they were starting to generate their own things. And you're like, this really isn't what it is, but we don't <laughs> really have anything there to prove you wrong yet. <laughs> so yeah. go, go wild. And not only are the events like, the maps are incorrect that means that whenever you're telling stories you're confusing the player because they're they're having a misconception of like where things are actually taking place geographically mm -hmm. versus like what where events are actually taking place right um and and so also <laughs> runeterra as a lore as an ip is really complicated you have things like capitals factions and continents that have the same name but they mean different things like an example could be Sharima is a continent in Runeterra but it's also a, a faction <laughs> of Runeterra um, or um, a region and then also there is the Shuriman sun disk <laughs> in the middle as a capital uh, not as a capital but essentially kind of like a very a very a important landmark of of this group of people and so <laughs> how do you communicate that basically one word can mean not necessarily mean three different things but they have like within context th there's information there that you yeah. need to understand or yeah. that Shrima is so close to that there's like a little section about Shrima that's kind of hanging off from the continent that is like basically where um, the oh my god I'm blanking out Akathia? Akathia? Yes. Oh Akathia? Acacia is like in that like you know little like little chunk there and then like obviously then the rest of that is jungle territory so like and then being able to kind of like conceptualize that and how that's as a whole biome is very different than like way up north like tundra like you know uh oh my god i'm like really blanking Frail out Yord. on the lord failure thank you um and so, like, how it's it's really interesting to see that it really tells the story, and it kind of like helps you really understand the world. Um, one thing
design the world. Like, there's a game designer that literally, like, made, like, the topography, the landscape, like, play, like, based on every single piece of information that we have of our world, stories, bios, like, video, everything, she was able to then, like, create the, essentially, like, the world of Runeterra um, as we see it. And then from there, our work was, okay, how do we, like, make sure that players are essentially, you know, getting the right kind of density of information at every Zoom level? Because you can zoom in and out of this app. And so being able to, like, say at this level, we surface, like, really big stuff. And then as you start getting closer to the world, you start getting into the details of the world. So we start surfacing more information that's more specific to, like, where you're tunneling to. Um, and then, and, and, and so that's the kind of work that I was also doing as well as what kind of, infor- how can we build systems so it's easier for then the team to push content into the map if they want to do that, that then that content goes out to players. So like new story comes out, it also gets like an X and Y coordinate on the map. And then, you know, they can actually uh, discover the content through the map. They don't really need to discover it through uh, the League of Legends client or the homepage of the universe website, et cetera, et cetera. You know, or they can maybe tether um, from different um, content beats in the actual map experience. And so that's the kind of work that really was more about like the UX. And, and also a... the fact that you could do mobile and desktop. <laughs> And that's a, a good point that illustrates that UX isn't just about things like a like a, a website or um, or a, a, an application. It's not just that. It I'm trying to think of a good way to say it. It's not just about like an asset that you make. Because uh, Vivi said, "What if uh, a story comes out? How do we push that through? Like that's a process." That, that's not really like, yeah, you could have a tool or something that that does do it, that is a, a an asset, but the actual idea of having a user experience uh, designer look at the process and flow of what you do and what you're trying to get out of it, like that is also that is also UX, right? Like <laughs> that goes back to that's go that goes back to what Chris said. It's it's always fun to ask because it's so flexible. It you hardly ever get the same answer twice. So. It's such a wide field. It does feel like maybe it's because it's not. In, it's not in, in, in its infancy, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But this sort of way of looking at UX, in in from my understanding, is fairly new in the in the industry of having like dedicated UX designers going through and and actually designing the user experience because i think beforehand and correct me if i'm wrong because i could be way off base but beforehand it was sort of just like an aspect of other jobs that they would go through and they would sort of like a game designer might go through and be like oh i want this to be like this and then sort of patch it through but now we've sort of had this specific job role in a company to go through and actually design those experiences uh, and work with the other teams to do so and I wonder if it's going to get more and more focused as time goes on, where we'll have. You don't think so? <laughs> it's actually it's so it's. Um, my understanding is it's something people uh, learned they needed to do. Chris will obviously have way more history there, and but like you know, 
it, it translated at least in games its accessibility. Um, mm-hmm. And I think game designers have uh, really good chops of what accessibility is in, in gaming. Um, I think, um, and then also it translated as like more clear and usable UI. So then that fell into the like UI bucket of like artists to be able to exercise those uh, UX muscles and like be able to come up with solutions that were more clear for um, the audience. However, uh, there's a whole like component on like humor computer interaction, how people interact with things, the psychology behind it, the behaviors, like, you know, when you're interacting with these things, um, like that is basically a science in there. And that's something that um, I haven't seen a like essentially like other disciplines do it. And instead the UX designer is inheriting all of that um all that responsibility i now have to be an expert in you know ux research i also have to be able to do like conduct these studies uh, or um come up with wireframes right and then also do the visual design look and feel of that you know and then sometimes i'm i am starting to see the trend now of now i have to be able to code it <laughs> and like you know that the, the ux engineer as a title is a thing now and i'm like oh my god like at some point i'm just gonna keep i'm, I'm just a sponge right now he's acquiring more skills more which, skills right, which, what that really means is that it's it's gonna provide less time for me to actually do what i should be doing which is ensuring that the core experience has been thought through from end to end instead if i'm spending most of my time coding that experience i'm mm-hmm. you know or like you know doing like the look and feel over here or whatever of course i need to understand basic um principles and under and, and language to be able to talk to developers and then artists and stuff like that about how these things are um being built so that i can come up with solutions that work for them too but um yeah, I, I am definitely also seeing the trend where all of a sudden, like, I'm like, a, I, my, our, the UX uh, designer is inheriting a lot of um, other responsibilities, and and that is um, yeah. an interesting trend, to say the yeah. least. I think Chris yeah. probably had something yeah. too. Oh, One yeah. of the, I mean, yeah, it's it's really interesting to me because if you if people try to think of it as like, here's the thing that I do. Whenever people hear a job title, like, you have an idea. If it says fireman, you know what they do. Uh, some of those coders, you know what they do. But with UX, I mean, it's it's so broad. Where like I've run huge de- like multiple departments at once doing the one thing there. But if you say someone's in UX, I mean, you could have someone doing ethnographic research, going out and living with people and figuring out their lives for a little. You have someone who's like coding and building prototypes. You have someone who's designing interfaces. You have someone who's building structured wireframes underneath on this. And you, it could be any one of those at any, any given point in time, or it could be one person doing all of those, depending on the size of the company and what they're trying to accomplish. It's so broad, and it's honestly only getting broader, because like I said, like we've mostly been talking about what, what's called product design when you're designing a thing, like if it's a game or a device or something like that. But there's also service design, which is a level beyond that, where there's no physical thing to interact mm-hmm. with. Like one of the ones that I was working with before was uh, Bank of America did this keep the change program where whenever you uh, whenever you make a payment on something, it rounds up to the nearest dollar and puts that in your savings account to help you save. 
that's an experience. There's no product, there's no thing, there's no interface. It's just a service that goes in there. And then there's also environmental design and there's also you know experiences and then there's organizational design. How does a company work and do all that? And these all fall under it and it's so broad, but there's one specific process that you follow regardless of what the problem you're tackling is to make sure that you're solving the right problem, you're testing all the right solutions and that they're actually effective. Yeah, it's um, it could be just because you know uh, if you're if if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And since I'm in production, I always see something related to production. But it's the same idea as like producers. It's it, for me, it boils down to basically organizational skills, right? Like it's it, that that that's kind of at its core what it's about. It's about organizing either a team or. Um, a, a small group of people um, or project, right? It, that That's what it kind of boils down to. But whenever you say, oh, we have someone who just organizes stuff, that sounds really weird. <laughs> you would think that everyone should be able to have some basic organization skill, right? Like, you know, so I, I view it in a very similar lens where it's like not, not to the same degree. I, I think that, uh, you know, to Chris's point uh, and Vivi's point, it, it is becoming broader and broader and broader. Um, I see that eventually, though, people across all disciplines will have some sort of UX skill. It, 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 I think that I think that is uh, inevitable, um, especially with the the way that the world is is going and the industry is going. Is you know, I have to think about how I interact with people, like uh, on a on a what do you call it? One to one basis. Also, how I interact with the team and what communication do I like? What communication tools do I use? You know, and, and looking at from that lens, I am trying to think about the experience of the people that I'm working with. Um, so, I I understand kind of where you're coming from, Ben. Where it, it makes sense that like people are starting to like put a lot of focus on user experience. So, like, yes, there is a there are user experience designers on teams that are meant to focus on that, but what they're asked to being focused on just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> yeah. And that's, There's that's, so that's, I think where some of the, oh. the outsider's perspective comes in because like when, like exactly what Chris was saying, I motioned to the wrong side, exactly what Chris was saying. <laughs> um, when you say like a, a fire person or a male person or a coder, you know exactly like what that person does. And that's like I think that's the major problem with UX design for people trying to look in and see what it is. Nobody knows what it is. Like unless you're doing it, nobody really knows what is going on. Um, like and that's, that's actually like the name. I would say like the name user use I I like user experience designer. I design user experiences, right? Like I know like I'm knowing these two and and listening to them and being I'm like yeah okay that is exactly yes that describes what they do. I can't think of another way to describe what they do. But at the same time, people go like, what does that mean? What is it? <laughs> like, it means exactly what it means, exactly what it means, right? Like, yeah. it, One thing yeah. that I do want to add real quick is that um, previously, you know, like previously on 24. But the, the, when other people were doing UX, let's say a game designer is doing UX or a um, UI artist is doing UX and stuff like that. Um, I, I think that 
sometimes when your main uh, focus is or your, your expertise is one field and you have to exercise um, your this other skill, you there's going to be an off balance of what you're focusing your attention to. So if you're a game designer, you're going to definitely over index on the game design of things. If you're um, a UI artist, you're going to definitely over index on look and feel. You're going to make things look and feel the vision that you want players to receive. Um, if you're, um, let's say, your business goals, right, in your, in, in, let's say you want to increase the amount of friendship requests or something like that. Like, that's your, like, business goal and designer, like, we want to do this, go. Um, my whole job is always in in the best intentions of players' hearts. Like, I want to be able to have empathy for that group of people and always advocate for that group of people. I will always be that one person that's pushing business goals that it's going to be like, no, like that's not a good experience because of X and Y. If we, let's work together until we can have business goals or we can create an experience where business goals align with players' expectations, with player needs, so that it's a positive experience for players and it's also beneficial for the company, you know, generate revenue, etc. You know, um, and, and that is also hard to do um, when your job is to advocate for them and you're pushing a lot. Um, so, and that gets to, that can potentially be um, harder to do if you're balancing other parts of your job to be like, but I also have to do this level or this like, you know, new weapon or blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, or, and then, oh, but I also have to do maybe the, the UI in the specific way because X and Y reasons or whatever. So like, um, I just want to point out that like, there is definitely a lot of strong value in like having a UX designer to be like in the, in your team to be focusing and being that champion of the player experience because their whole job is that they have a ton of tools and processes that allow them to take their own bias out of the equation and create solutions that best fit the, the target audiences, um, uh, users, you know, goals and needs. So I, I completely agree with all. It's uh, one of the things that I always, I would joke about is saying that like, I would love a future where my job does not exist because everyone just has those skills. But on the same token, like having someone who focuses on that gives that bigger picture. So that if someone who's like, you know, coding this weapon or this character or whatever, they're thinking about that, but then the greater narrative person can step in and go, oh, hey, this is how it ties in. We need sure it balances on that. I think for people who understand what UX is or like have that idea in there, they think like the first thing that comes to mind is empathy, having empathy for that user, understanding what it's like coming from there. And that's important, but I think something that's equally as important is what I call the spider web, where mm -hmm. if you imagine all the people who are gonna be interacting with something just sitting around a table and there are lines connecting all of them, if you focus on this person and start designing it to make an amazing experience for them, it's gonna pull from all the other people. So how do you start balancing all this so that everyone gets the optimal experience possible throughout the entire thing? That's a hard problem to solve, I imagine. <laughs> That's why we have jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, um, for... For... Um, hmm. 
I'm trying to think like, oh yeah, I could say that. Um, for Runeterra, we had like, we had bucketed, like this was kind of like a general understanding of group of people. Like we obviously have your hyper-engaged League of Legends players, but they're not necessarily hyper-engaged lore, you know, advocates, right? Or so we had, we were just trying to get a better feel of like who that audience was. Because as rioters, we may have a very clear understanding of the world and we may have our own little biases in terms of like how things should work. And actually some of that even gets sprinkled across like um like the the way that we navigate on the site and the, the client. And there's an inherent like um I guess like a uh, notion that you you know what champions are, you know what regions are, and that's how you navigate across the universe site. But as a new player that's completely learning, especially like in being introduced to the world of Runeterra through Legends of Runeterra, through Wild Rift, through, let's say, the uh, TV show, like, there is a world where you might not know exactly what that is first. You might, and because the characters look visually different across the different games, you could potentially say, hey, I don't. I, I, I like this character This in, in this Awakened video of League of Legends. He had, like, I mean, he was like on a piano. Um, I don't really know his name though, and but I want to learn more about him. How mm -hmm. the heck would you be able to do that as a writer? I may be like, yeah, you go to the champions page and you go down to like you know Jin and, and you're you're there, right? As a very hyper engaged player, you might know that too. As a new player or a new, mm -hmm. I, not even player, because you may not play League of Legends. You might see, mm -hmm. wow, that video is bomb, and I want to learn more about characters. How would, you, how would you even do that? And so being able to do exercises and facilitate conversations around like, hey, like, you know, there's like all these different ways of like of wanting to learn more about uh, these the, the world, right? That's not just like um, champion centric from like League of Legends, but more like um, there's an interest there um, and I want to learn more, but I don't know these things. Um, how do I, how do you facilitate it? How do you like surface the right kind of information so people can make um the, the decisions that they want to make and find the information that they want to um, discover. And um, and that's ultimately like why um, UX is so hard is because you're trying to take yourself out of the equation. You're trying to put other people instead and, and advocating for a, a group of people that might not be you. Um, yeah. Tiny, tiny tangent off that. I really like how you brought that up because the, this is might be an example of UX, uh, a good UX, because there is a feature on... Uh, Amazon Prime Video, which I don't think is a very widely used uh, way to get content. I think most people use like Disney, YouTube, or Netflix or something. But Amazon Prime has this feature, and I haven't seen it on any other site. It's called X-Ray. Yeah, X-Ray. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And it's awesome because you can just click on, you can click pause at any time and see who the actor on screen is, like what other roles they could have been in, what other like major things. And then like, I would love that feature in everything. Like everything should have that feature. I don't know. I'm sure it would be uh, an there's a absolute component. There's a business component that makes sense for Amazon Prime to have it that perhaps <clears throat> it doesn't make sense on Netflix, as an example. Um, <laughs> Amazon probably wants you to say, hey, check out the other stuff that they're in. Go buy it. Mm -hmm. It's funny so for me because I actually designed that interface. Uh, many years ago. No, I really. It was on the light of day, mind you. Yeah, it was for uh, Philips Home Theater PC that they came out with many years ago. And the whole, but it, like 
you said, they need to have a business case behind it. But the whole thing was people would be going through and scanning different things. So you could pause at any point in time. And what it would do is tell you, yes, who's on there, but also what they're wearing, what that thing is that they're working with. And you could buy it all right there. So they get a cut. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. But like that, that kind of stuff doesn't make sense on Netflix because you don't buy their their movies, right? That's not part of their well, their business model. Wait, you, however, you <laughs> but however, I would argue that Disney Plus could explore something like that and tie it yeah. to their greater ecosystem, like their stores, like whatever that may be. Um, an opportunity. Disney definitely has enough merchandise. They yeah. totally I could... do. And so, yeah. like, that's like, uh, so it, that's the part where, like, um, sure, it's it, it's a thing that that could be a part of your experience. Is it solved? Is there? Uh, and then, how do you balance business goals with player needs? And like, how do you make sure that you justify this over, over something else, mm-hmm. right? Because there's always that delicate, uh, you know. Excuse spider me, web. like not about no, 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 not spiderweb. Um, the like the there's multiple things you could be doing at a given yeah. time, right? And so there's that feature. Like, let's say you were to include X-ray in Netflix. But maybe Netflix wants to, but at the same time, that team can be investing in something entirely different. And if they think that that other thing is has way more uh, value overall and more of a business case, then they're going to double down on that one. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. that's the other part in the business. Product, which is product management, which yeah. is another, there's, there's a whole other. That's another field. confusing and scary area <laughs> of the business and game design world. Um, oh, shoot. I was going to say something about this. Okay. Taco Bell. Taco, exactly. Oh, okay. Taco Bell. Let's it, talk about it, Taco Bell. I was, I was just they just got rid of the seven layer burrito. Yeah. And I'm furious. Well, I, mean, I, 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 don't I don't care. I don't care about that. Right. Well, let's talk about really? the user experience of, of the seven layer burrito. Yeah. Let's so when you open Taco <laughs> Bell, seven layer burrito. <laughs> You get this paper. Why are you opening your burrito? (laughs) (laughs) To see what's inside. (laughs) Yeah. To verify that there are seven layers. Yeah. Yeah, This is really funny. (laughs) Only because Chris, our friend, and I were just talking about eating tacos. And the. (laughs) Like, not that long ago, we were talking about, like, how you're supposed to eat it top down. And then you're like, but who really does that? (laughs) Wait, excuse me. Let's, Let's take one step back. How are you supposed to eat tacos? <laughs> this is the real. This is the real topic about. The this is the real topic. Did about you you said top about. down? Did you mean taco. like? Yeah. Did like, you mean like? Yeah. Like a corn on the cob, yeah, yeah. like ah. not not to the side, like a lot yeah. of people do, but like, yeah, like ah. Yeah. Who who who's making this decision? Nobody does. Oh, that's a clear example of. You design it one it. way, but your and user people use it do it a different way. Is there a so big taco? Usually, of like you have like a pretty sidewalk with like I forget like a stones or whatever. It's like a walkway, and it says like you. <laughs> it says like visual design or whatever. I don't know what it says, right? But then there's like a path that's like just like dead grass dead between grass it, yeah because people have been walking through it over and over and yeah. that says ux user, and it's basically because yeah. like literally like and that actually happened at riot in the campus too like you know they designed mm-hmm. the campus and then you had like is it cobblestone i don't know like the little stones and you're, you're stepping over right little paths um like that 
And they were it's, ignored. <laughs> so <laughs> so literally, here, I'll, I'll show you. So, like, there's there's a path that does, like, so you come out of an e exit here, and then it does this number. Like, it kind of does this weird little, like, swoop. People would just get out and just go straight over. Like, they would ignore this little, so, like, this, all the grass would just die. And then, like, a month later, they just put stepping stones, like, right here. <laughs> the audio. Like, a lot of little stepping stones, like, yeah. right, like it, it, basically where people just made their own path. And I was like, ooh. Yeah. The audio <laughs> listeners love this yeah. part of the podcast. Yeah, exactly. This is the part in UX design yeah. where you iterate. <laughs> like, we haven't actually talked about that, right? You you create products, mm -hmm. but then you learn about how people use them. And then you have yeah. to make, like, does it performing well? Cool. If it's underperforming, you have to iterate. And so in this particular example with the campus, the iteration was, okay, well, then we're just going to have to create new pathways for people. And it's actually the, where people were walking. And then they put stones there, and then people were walking there, and then cool, you fixed it, and then you move on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what Vivi's describing is one of the biggest memes in the UX world. Like on the groups, you'll see that image so many times where it just happens. <laughs> and there's a, a famous research example of that where I, I forget which university it was, but the university does, they just, they didn't put any sidewalks in. They just had the big open fields and put all the buildings in. And then they waited one semester to see where everyone walked oh, wow. and then just paved those paths. And oh wow! It was okay. I love that. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah. So okay, we're we're ninety nine percent of the way there. So let's just take the jump. Let's talk about <laughs> UX outside of games and outside of like design. Let's talk about like UX in the real world because we're we're basically talking about it right now. Um, do we want to start with the Disneyland example, or do we want to just work yeah. our way up to there? Oh oh oh! I got one because I, I love I love hearing I love hearing Vivi and Chris go off about it. Well, I guess more Vivi than anything else. Doors. Oh no! Specific. <laughs> For audio listeners, Vivi like... just had a very exasperated look on her face. <laughs> I remember excited her... about Disney, and then this guy says doors. I'm, I'm just like, saying, it's one of it's one of the funniest doors. things I remember. I remember listening <laughs> to Vivi rant about is talking about like opening a door, like the user experience, <laughs> like the 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 it, just going to like just think about it. You're out somewhere going to a building, and there's a push bar. Well, not even a push bar. There's just a bar there. Like, how do you open that yeah, door? Yeah, it just says open, and you're like trying yeah. to figure out if you have to push or pull, and if you don't have confidence in one well actually it's not even that it's like you'll try one it doesn't work <laughs> then you try the other and then it does and then that happens often yeah so it's like <laughs> it's like the usb kind of like, it's the usb <laughs> equivalent where you'll you'll plug it in you're like oh man <laughs> and then it, you're always like <laughs> oh, <dang it." laughs> yeah 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 and you have yeah, those I mean, signs like, that say like no seriously push on this door because they don't work the first time it's like oh, come on. <laughs> that's like a band-aid solution oftentimes it's always like a really pretty door like it's beautifully designed door but in terms of not functionality but like aesthetics right and then but the door handle makes it look like you have to pull it but actually it was a push and you're like uh uh <laughs> and and that happens yeah. um that that yeah that that does happen and and it's it's little more i don't actually even call those out anymore larry why are you calling <laughs> know, it it's out just, because <laughs> it's because it was the, like like i remember you went on a half an hour rant about yeah, it I was one reading time a book i was reading yeah. the, the don norman book and that was yeah. a chapter oh, and i was like i don't it's just it's oh it always stuck out to me and i was like yeah i never thought of it that way 
So anyway, okay, let's talk about Disney. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> Disney time. Actually, the my favorite examples to give of the worst UX uh, that mm. will never change are ATMs and gas pumps. <clears throat> Those have always been and will always be horrible experiences. You can't figure out just a grid of everything looking the same and it looks awful. <laughs> and the reason why it will never improve is because the people who are installing these are just like, yeah, whatever the cheapest option is. I'm just trying to make money here. They don't care. <laughs> I argue very strongly that it will change because AT both ATMs and gas pumps are on their way out. I'm making the argument right now. <laughs> so they we're going. We're moving into die. a cashless society. <laughs> cash is cash is on its way. Come on, come on. Are you sure? You think in 50 years we're gonna be carrying our little pieces of paper? No. Yeah. And then hopefully, because <laughs> I mean, people are stupid. Like that's just we don't we don't like change. How long has how long has currency been a thing? Forever. Well, currency currency is <laughs> not going away. Just, the the way that you hold contrarian. it is going away. Like, uh, all right, all right. You're gonna have a years, card. We're gonna come back. All right. Or no, it's all gonna 50, be in your fifty years. Fifty years. Yeah, yeah. Fifty years. <laughs> dev 50 dive. Years. <laughs> fifty years. Dev dive. Two thousand and fifty-two. <laughs> we're gonna come back. I'm gonna set a Google that's reminder insane. on my calendar. Not, it's thirty years, but you know what? We'll we'll have a check-in. That's it's okay. <laughs> yeah, Wait. I would love to see those things die. If we do switch over to fully electric or automated. That would get rid of that, and if we switch over to just doing things on our phone and everything independent, that would get rid of that. But uh, there's a lot between now and that happening. I, the, the that, I'm, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna prove you guys wrong. Very, the door is so outdated. It's all about LA parking signs now. Okay. <laughs> oh, Wait, awful. who park? Who parks anymore, Vivi? <laughs> When's the last time you parked somewhere? <laughs> It's never gonna end. Yeah, I've started. I don't know. There's that meme of this, like you see the sign, and it's like eight signs high of like a million things that you have to remember from one of the next everything. Someone designed a better one that some cities have started implementing now. It's just one sign with basically like a weak map that you see like the green areas and red areas, and you know it, and. Yay. Chicago has yeah. a really nice one. Like, I was like, okay, so it's not a big city problem. It's the LA, it's just implementing <laughs> probably some pretty dark patterns here. Um, oh. Because, holy yeah. hell. Actually, so, um, I also heard things like, uh, like uh, I wanted to say, um, before we get too into it, the, the problem with the signs is that they're just confusing. Like, no parking between 8 a.m. and 9 p.m. on Wednesdays. But if, if, it's a, if it's a good Friday, then you can park at 2 p.m., but only if your car is green. And only if it's an actual green car, not, like, electrically friendly to the environment. And if it's a leap year. <laughs> and if it's a yeah, leap, year. leap year. Yeah. And then yeah. Uh, just, unless it's a Saturday. Yeah. Oh, not on like, Saturdays. What? Like, <laughs> uh, um, there's also like the because a lot of people have to rely on street parking to get through business and, stuff like that. and some of these street parkings are like in residential areas there's also permits right and like you can't actually park there i had no idea this was a permit zone what the hell like the sign yeah. doesn't even say anything but i i guess i need to know that yeah i don't know it's a mess <laughs> there goes <Yeah>. that ticket <laughs> Yeah. It's it's one of the reasons I don't mind as much not having a car anymore. <laughs> not having to do with yeah. all that bullcrap. Talking about business cases, 
they have a strong business case to not fix it because that means they would reduce revenue because people wouldn't be getting as many tickets. Yeah. Yep. I've seen some conspiracies yeah. about that where uh, people are saying like they aren't fixing confusing signs because like, exactly what you said, where they're getting more tickets. And I don't know how much I believe that, but maybe. I don't think it's an evil conspiracy. But yeah, it's more of like a it just started out and it got confusing and then people just don't have any incentive to fix it and laziness mm-hmm. wins out. So mm-hmm. I guess that's true. Yeah. Alright, so Disneyland or Disney World yeah, or Disney, Disney in general. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um so, so yeah, we, we flirted with a bit, but why is why is Disneyland and Disney World and, and these theme parks, why are they so different from other examples? Like why have they been designed with with this user experience in mind so much and like how do you notice that from even somebody who doesn't really understand what's going on with user experience uh, that's the trick you don't notice it <laughs> well that's that's the <laughs> point like the thing. yeah the, so Walt Disney really cared about details and he cared about the experience and how it all came together like if you go i i love theme parks i have since i was a little kid i'm a big enthusiast about them if you go to a six flags or something like that you go there, you ride amazing coasters. They're great. They'll scare you. And then it's kind of like you're walking through this weird post-apocalyptic area after that to the next <laughs> to the next amazing roller coaster. Whereas if you go to Disney, it's less about a thrill ride and more about everything along the way. Uh, if you look at all the little... Because they have all the different lands in there. One of my favorite things to do, and we've talked about this, Phoebe and I have talked about this, Larry, we've talked about this before, is like find the transition areas between lands and you'll start seeing how like how they morph into one another smoothly, things you would have never noticed before. How it's part one land and part the next land as you're walking through little things like that. And there's uh, there's this phrase that I can't remember right now that Walt did uh, that he always used whenever he was uh, designing the parks, and it's hilarious now. But it was basically like you always have to be able to see a weenie, mm-hmm. and. The reason for this is because he would just walk around and stop somewhere, and wherever you were, you have to be able to see just a weenie stand, a hot dog stand, so that wherever you were, there's always something to consume, something to do, so there was no just dead zone where you were like, oh, where am I? What's going on? Wherever you are, if you stop in a Disney park, there will be something amazing going on around you, and that detail really takes it to the next level. That, um... That principle, because that's actually part of like the Disney Imagineers have a what's called the Mickey Ten Commandments, and so those are like literally design principles that they use in order to craft like you know experiences. I know the Mickey Ten Commandments. Um, so so like, sorry, that's what? just that's what that's, I can't. <laughs> oh my god! Sorry, I'm sorry. Them, it's a joke. <laughs> one of them is still the in the weenie, and that's been morphed more into like a point of interest that you want users to follow Mm -hmm. and kind of guide them through the park. So as I am, you know, when I enter, let's say Disneyland and Main Street, the first thing, at least in Christmas, is going to be the giant Christmas tree there. And then the next, and when I make it to that point, the next Winnie is actually the castle, because as I walk down Main Street, the biggest thing that I see is going to be the Disney, the uh, Aurora's Castle. When I start getting closer to Aurora's Castle, then I get split into different directions, but the most immediate weenie is actually going to be Space Mountain. And so, like, you start literally, or Matterhorn or something like that, and you, I know, and you start literally kind of, like, guiding people, and, and it's a way almost to guide the traffic on the park. 
so that certain areas start like so you start kind of like predicting where the traffic is going and then people can then like offset like uh with maybe character experiences here so that you can start pulling people into a different area so then it, it evens out the traffic and stuff like that um i uh and you can potentially learn use that like let's say in in a 3d environment in a video game you can use that by saying i'm going to put really interesting points of interest in the world so that you can you know enter you know run up to that thing and now you see something cooler and then you go over there and you're basically guiding people throughout an experience can you oh, yeah. can you tell that vivi's been to disneyland a couple times just a, a few, few times from yeah. memory from memory being able to tell you the first i don't know <laughs> 500 yards of what you're, what you're gonna see i've been to disneyland <laughs> once and it was when I was um, interviewing for my current job out here. I flew out here and stayed with a couple friends, and we went to Disneyland. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm actually just struggling to like recall even the basic structure <laughs> of the park. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> so the parking lot, the entrances, because there's like Disneyland on this side and California Adventure on this side, and there's like a big space between those two. Um, I understand that my my godparents. I have to thank this my godmother mm-hmm. specifically for this because she found i don't know how her love for disney started but she was very much like telling my parents you need to take this girl to disney and i was three <laughs> and then they were like she's not gonna remember she's like sure she will and then like i forget how that happened but like she got my parents to i think she either paid for the the disney part or something but like my parents took a vacation there took me there and some of my strongest memories of disney are still from that three-year-old me um wow my favorite character and granted obviously three-year-old memory is very different than obviously what's reality but like what i will say is like um epcot center became a very strong um like mark in my or or an imprint in my in my brain in my lifetime because you know that's where I, i got introduced to my favorite character figment He's a figment of your imagination. I didn't know what the word figment meant in back when I was three, let alone like English language back then. So I, I was like, cool dragon, he's cute. And he played my hand because he's a puppet and ow, but he's cool and I like him. <laughs> and then uh, funny enough as a designer, how like the figment of your imagination is my favorite like character in Disney, which is crazy. But um the and and then how that transitioned into like now they're like scientists and like his ride is more about like discovering like you know imagination inside of you and like how do you like you know create things that it, and I'm like oh my god my hopes <laughs> my life <laughs> but um but yeah no like for me living in Puerto Rico and flying to Florida um for vacation was a very common thing that we we did and in fact before i moved to the states i had been to uh disney world i think three times four times um and so and then when i since then i've gone like five more times like between disneyland and disney world chris larry and i went to china at some point we went to shanghai disney like part of the appeal yep. now is to compare the different parks and see what the experiences are what cultural yeah. you know how culture changes the experience between the different parks um like in china the parks uh the shanghai disney has a lot more on um, theater type of shows because that's more appealing to the group of people um yeah. and 
the audience in Shanghai Disney is not going to be mostly tourists. It's going to be mostly mainland China that's going to go in there. Um, whereas the Walt Disney, whereas California is mostly California residents, and whereas Walt Disney World is mostly a global, uh, yeah. you know, um, visitor uh, group base, and and that's because of the way that it's been marketed, right? And so to then see compare those differences is quite interesting. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I kind of, I kind of have a really good understanding of the park. It's true. I've been doing that. I've been trying to go to to visit all of them around the world because, yeah, I've been to the the two in California, the four in Florida, the two in Tokyo, the oh. one in Shanghai. All that's left now, I think, is Hong Kong and Paris. Um, and and you're completely right. Like seeing the different ones. So my first time going to Disney was Disneyland, and I went there with a friend who was born and raised in LA. And so he went there a lot growing up over his entire childhood. And so when we went, he was he was a guide. Like he went there, it's like, yeah, so right now we need to go here to get this fast pass for this. And so this, and mm-hmm. he knew he had the entire experience fully optimized so that you got to do everything you want to do in a single day well together. And the rest of us were just like, how do you even know all this stuff? <laughs> going amazing. And then I, I went with that same guy and we went to Tokyo. We went to Tokyo Disney Sea. And all of a sudden, like seeing him his brain just start glitching out. It's like, no, I'm here, but I don't know what to do. This is how everyone else feels. How do I, how do I do this? <laughs> it was hilarious to watch, but it, she's completely right. Like they, there were a lot more shows in the China one. And in, uh, in Japan, there's a lot more uh, games, like games to play where you try mm-hmm. to knock things over and do stuff like that. And there would be long lines at those games because that's something that they really enjoy. And seeing how they cater to the local culture was really fascinating because they care about those details of the experience. That, yeah, my that's... favorite part of the, I would say my favorite part of the Shanghai Park was like, it, it, it like it wasn't even close to closing. It was like a couple was, hours like, before the park six. closed. Yeah, yeah and uh, the Tron ride was there, and and we were like, oh, we really like the Tron ride. That was cool. We we rode it once. It was a there was a line, and then we we're like, okay, we'll come back at the end of the day. And we came back. Yeah, it was like five or six o'clock. No one was there. We we literally just rode the ride what five times in a row. I think six. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and like it, it got the pirates. Uh, the, everyone yeah. was actually in the pirates uh, theater, like stunt show. That was yeah. the thing too. Yeah. It was either that, that one was or there. Tarzan, uh, yeah. Musical. Yeah. And it was it was just funny. It got to the point when we were on the Tron ride that we uh, did different poses for the cameras. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, that was yeah, so yeah. I've only I need been to, go to back f- and do that again. Anyway, I've only been sorry. to a few parts. Um, well, here, US. There, there is. I've been to Disneyland. Obviously, I mentioned that. Uh, Bush Gardens, which is in Virginia, Williamsburg, Virginia, mm-hmm. and then and Tampa. And Tampa. I haven't been to that one. I was planning to go to that one this year, but. Maybe. Okay. Oh yeah. Who why? Does? What, what happened? I don't know. There's been some. I think a couple people have like a, a cough or something. Uh, uh, I whole thing. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> That's the whole thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've only been to like three. I think three three parks total. Uh, and one of the experiences was amazing because it was just that the entire time there was nobody in the. It wasn't empty, but there was no line longer than three or four minutes for any ride in the park. Mm. And this was like an actual ride park. It was um, not Bush Gardens, the other one. Uh, I cannot think of it off the top of my head for some reason. Uh, um, tree Gardens. Uh, tree gardens. gardens. That's exactly it. <laughs> Larry, you're always you're always so 
quick with the the correct answer that I really Are you looking at Six Flags? No, no, no. It's not it's a it's a local one. Um if I look I'm gonna look it up right now. Virginia theme park. I'll look it up because I won't I won't be happy until I uh King's Dominion. King's Dominion. Oh, okay. I heard of that one. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's basically just a roller coaster park. There's not much else to do there other than roller coasters. And they have some really, really big ones. And me and my friend, we went. It was like a Thursday afternoon or something. So it was the middle of the week. And there was nobody in the entire park. And it was amazing. You would just walk on any ride you want, ride the ride. Uh, the only lines that would be would be like maybe there'd be a three or four person line for the, the front car. Because everyone would ride in the front car. Um, so, yeah, that was it really spoiled me for theme parks. Because I went to Disneyland with my friends, and they're like, "It's only a forty-minute line for Face Mountain." Oh my god! Oh, I'm like, "No, <laughs> I can't do it." Really Side note. Oh, oh sorry. I was gonna say tangent. Whenever this, whenever that whole thing goes away, we we're talking about, we should go to Universal. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get some butter beer. We we'll have to go. We we'll have to yeah. go. During a, we'll have to like take off a weekday and try to go in the middle of the week so it's not as not as busy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's yeah. always the best time. Yeah. See, um, when I was yeah. a kid, I grew up loving theme parks. My all right, so both my parents are choir directors, so I grew up going to conventions and conferences, contests and stuff. And so every year we went to all three of the theme parks because that's where they held them. And so every <laughs> year, yeah, I went to Six Flags, Worlds of Fun, and Silver Dollar City, which was previously a Dollywood but had changed to that, like, 1800s-themed thing. And, it like, the smell of hot asphalt in the summer, like, takes me back to childhood. And I absolutely love, like, yeah, doing those things and seeing it. There's so many great ones out there. I had a friend who was telling me about uh, when he was a kid going to Action Park, which uh, is in New Jersey, I think. There's an entire documentary about it, but it had a bunch of extremely unsafe rides and people were constantly getting hurt on them like they had a water slide mm. with a loop in it and <laughs> things like that <laughs> okay. and sounds awesome yeah they, solid, I think the nickname solid. Were like traction park or class action park <laughs> oh no <laughs> but yeah they eventually got shut down but there's an entire documentary about it and everything it's absolutely fascinating i want to go let's go when are we going to ride, let's ride the water the uh, the water slide with the loop in it. Well, that closed down in the eighties. But yeah. all right, he's got a time machine. I was gonna say um, to go back a little bit on like what makes Disney have like really good experiences. Oh yeah, um, I, I know, right? Bringing it back, guys. Um, That's my job usually. <laughs> I think about Galaxy's Edge a lot, obviously, because that's like the closest. Sorry, the most recent um, Disney park experience that I've had. Um, spoiler alert for people that have not been there, but um, there is a lot going on there. Um, it's very, very much like the design, the architecture, the you know the concept of like being in a Star Wars universe, like planet, right? And what that means is taken very seriously. The The fact that um, you go to a cast member um, and their uniform is now matching the world that they're, you know, the, the fantasy, right? Um, 
the language that they use now is a little different, right? Like, mm -hmm. we're not actually saying dollars anymore. I forget. I think they're saying credits. credits. Yeah, credits. Credits. Right? credits. They yeah. had a different, I think they had a different word, and then they had to go back to credits. Um, the the idea that now, like, the drinks that I have there um, have to um, be a part of this universe. So, like, the blue milk, green milk mm -hmm. thing, right? Uh, but also very much, like, how do we make sure that everyone can try this right like that there's no like food allergies so they went for the plant-based approach right so that they didn't have so the people that may want to have or that may have dietary uh, restrictions can still participate in this experience just like someone that didn't right um and then there's alcoholic versions of that in disney <laughs> world <laughs> and then um the idea that i you know when you think about star wars and you think about that iconic cantina you know where han solo's there you know like and 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 wanting to experience something similar, they have that. You know, you just have to do a line and queue up for it. But like, once you get in there, they have that. And then being able to play, like, kind of see and observe like that area and kind of feel like you're part of the cantina there, that felt really cool. The 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 fantasy of building your own lightsaber and and being a part of like this like secret um group that's kind of being smuggled in and then you're trying to create your lightsaber and then you don't know if the person next to you might be actually because you know they pick a red crystal they might actually be sith and you might be more <laughs> of like you know <laughs> you might be more of on the rebel side and then um when you get out perfectly timed kylo ren is actually patrolling with the stormtroopers and he starts questioning you on like who um if you've seen any suspicious like you know like rebel activity and like that literally happened to me and larry last time we went with my parents where um he walks out with my dad and my mom and the new lightsaber because we we ordered one for a friend and i questioned <laughs> and then we were like holy crap like what do i say and so it was funny because i was like i don't know anything and then he and then one of the stormtroopers gets mad at me right and he's like you're a liar you told me blah blah and i'm like oh my god right and so like that that part where like now I'm actually an actor in this world and you know and it's building this fantasy like I'm actually a part of it like and and we are in a way role playing together and it all felt very organic like that's actually a very good experience for me as a visitor right and to fulfill this Star Wars fantasy and be connected so even outside of the theme park like or sorry the the roller coaster like you know attractions there is all these little things that all contribute to the experience. Um, that are very fulfilling. Like I can find fulfillment even from uh, being at one of the stores and looking at the little and all the different kyber crystals and then figuring out which one I want because the cast member might be telling me about the kyber crystal or some history around it or how like, you know, uh, such and such character like actually preferred this kind of crystal more, whatever that may be. They might actually engage with you in a way that might make you feel like you're part of that. One of my favorite moments last year was actually I was with my friend Kelly and I had a yeah. Donald uh, hat on <laughs> and they were trying to figure out how to talk to me like, you know, Star Wars universe talk, but also like, so they were starting to stay in character, but highlight the fact that I have a weird hat, like a weird hat on. Yeah. <laughs> you know so they were like trying to yeah. like say like you know and and the thing unfortunately for me like i'm not like that knowledgeable in the different races or like you know fauna and flora and in, in the star wars ip but i was like oh crap like they're totally <laughs> going in and i'm here like i have a donald hat i don't know what to say yeah. but it was still fun um and it was a fun interaction yeah. um and so there's just a lot that that 
it literally I can I can have a good experience. And even actually when I hit it had nothing to do. Like we weren't in line for anything. We weren't I was literally just taking pictures. Like I was like, look at these steps, Larry. Look at this like door. <laughs> look at this thing. Like, it, the door. Yeah. He's right. Yeah. Larry was right. <laughs> so, you know, um, they have these fun um they have a lot of cargo kind of like, you know, sets like or containers. Prop containers. Yeah. And they have these like QR codes that are um kind of oh. on the side. And you're supposed to grab your phone and like scan it with their like I think uh, play app. And yeah. it's like a built it's a game that's in the in the galaxy's edge component of the park where you're trying to find out where contraband you know is being smuggled and you're supposed to tell on them by going to the stormtroopers and say that you're seeing like you know fishy activity you're also supposed to be on the lookout for a character that's that's uh, a park only character that's supposed to be amongst the crowd and if you tell on her to the stormtroopers, Kylo Ren's supposed to show up or something. Like, we haven't really done that part. But, like, because half the time I'm like, no, I, I like her. Like, why am I going to tell her? <laughs> but then, Loki also look, like, and kind of follow and see if someone does tell on her, yeah. you know, just to see what happens. But there's, like, all of these points of interest that, like, just draw you in. And unfortunately, that's not stuff that you see in other parks. You are starting to see that a little bit with, like, Universal. I would say that the Harry Potter world, the IP is just so great that like it kind of like pulls you Lends in the itself. moment you go in. You're like, oh my god, yeah. there's the source. Like you know, you are in either Diagon Alley or um, Hogsmeade. Hogsmeade, yes. Hogsmeade. And so like that, that feels great. But the moment that you get out and you're looking at older content, that's where it starts that kind of breaking. You start seeing it again at the line experience. At least like for instance, um, uh. The Transformer ride, like, you get to see it, like, it kind of hype you up. You're starting, you're in a military base, and, like, you know, the, a lot of it is kind of, like, you know, secret military stuff, and, like, Optimus Prime is telling you about, like, you know, something about the AllSpark, <laughs> and you're like, oh, shit, you know? But, um, but then the moment that you leave, that fantasy's gone. And now I'm like, yeah. okay, I'm at a warehouse studio, like, and I get it. That's part of Universal, right? And you're supposed to you're supposed to kind of go into these like little movie sets and then come out and then you're back to the real world and then now you're going to a different movie set aka in another attraction right now i'm in jurassic park now i'm in the mummy but but and that's an experience in itself but it, it there there's trade-offs to that um it's, it's a convenient way of making it like easier to <laughs> to design yeah. this thing it's like it's all fake yay <laughs> are you immersed yet <laughs> yeah, but then, yeah. until you start seeing like them tacking on things like for instance you know I, I talked about transformers and then when you go in or out you're you could potentially have a character experience with one of the three a megatron um bumblebee or, or optimus prime right and he might be stationed outside and you may see that same thing with a. Uh, raptor in <laughs> in the uh in the jurassic world part and that's pretty much about it like you may see a minion in the minion section you don't i don't remember if you see a simpsons character in the simpsons area but you're kind and then like random like celebrities from the movies because i get it universal but like um it feels way more cohesive like Disney has it more tighter in terms of this is the fantasy that we want. You're going to smell like that sense. You're going to see that like we're going to overload you visually with those sense, like with that information and everything's going to scream one single like topic. 
So if it's space or Tomorrowland, it's space. You know, if you're going to Adventureland, it's like that like jungle, like Indiana Jones kind of thing. And and if you're in Fantasyland, that's where we push all the princess content. You know, and and that's you and you you live and breathe that. And so and it's easier to parse that information, to consume it, you know, to experience it than if it's just like random sets like the universal approach. Yeah, universal it will be things like you might be in one land, you see like stuff sticking out of the other lands in the background. Whereas at oh, Disney, yeah. they'll actually make it so that like, no, you can't see anything yeah. but that. They'll they'll paint the backsides of other ones so that it matches the land that you're yeah. in. So that there's never any loss of immersion in there. It reminds me, yeah. it remembers me of things like uh, Ronald McDonald. Whenever someone's dressed as Ronald McDonald the Clown, they are Ronald McDonald. They are never to say anything. Like, if they get pulled over in their car, <laughs> they are supposed to tell the cops that they are Ronald McDonald, and McDonald's will pay their bail <laughs> and cover them, but they should never <laughs> break character. And it's the same philosophy that Disney has. Like, if you talk yeah. to a, a character actor, mm-hmm. like, oh, are you Cinderella? It's like, no, I'm friends with Cinderella. They'll say that. Yeah. Things like yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> The yeah. other component that is also really good in terms of, like, we've talked about physical park experience, right, with Disneyland, but another thing that Disney, as a as a brand that has really well integrated, at least in Walt Disney World, is the Magic Band experience, and the idea of, yeah. like, I want to um, experience, in a frictionless way, booking my Disney reservations, getting to the mm-hmm. park, and experiencing the park, right? Mm-hmm. Like, from the moment that you go into the airport, you can actually, like, check in your bags, and you don't see them until you're on her, your hotel room, as long as you yep. stay in the hotels from Disney, right? Yeah. You know, you have a magic band that's mailed to you ahead of time, where you have all of your information, dietary allergies, credit card information, you know, your fast pass, yeah. like everything, right? You don't actually technically have to carry a wallet <laughs> if you don't need to. And that's, yeah. I guess, great for the children um, in that sense, but um, you know, you get to Orlando, and then now I can ride one of the shuttles that's provided for me to go to specifically the hotel that I, you know, am staying for the mm-hmm. night. Um, now my my bags are in my room. That's awesome. You know, I don't have to mm-hmm. deal with that. And guess what? All I had to do is just use the wristband, and I open my door. I don't need to even check mm-hmm. in because I did that online. Mm-hmm. Like that, the yeah. whole part of like your vacation experience is really, mm-hmm. really good. And I don't know if that exists in in if Universal has an equivalent, and I don't think yeah. it does because again, yeah. like it, it's, it's a different bad. company, a different yeah. world there. But like They're... that that experience is really, really. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I mean, there's definitely areas for improvement, but it's really strong. And being able to then say, I can now plan ahead of time what rides I want to go to and then, like, request fast passes, link accounts. Like, Larry and I can link our accounts, and then all of a sudden I'm managing his, like, in my time so that we're together doing this. And, like, um, I can request, like, the menu ahead of time. I can say, hey, I actually have food allergies, so I want a different menu. And then they they get really, yeah. like really good about like making sure that that particular good yeah and and so there's there's a lot there that is not like theme park design but more like service experience and it's really really good and Mm -hmm. and so again there's like park experience like yeah my my favorite aspect of the magic band it's it's pretty straightforward it's pretty simple but i don't know it just it just feels so good it's i have my magic band i'm at the park I'm walking through and I go, oh, I want to buy this thing. I just walk up and I say, I want to buy this. And they go, okay, Magic Band, I've paid for it. 
and they say it'll be in your hotel room. If you stay at the hotel, it'll be at your hotel room. They will deliver it for you. I don't have to carry shit. I can just literally walk up and buy six different items and walk away, and they will deliver it to my room. It, 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 that is, it's one of those things that you just don't realize how awesome that is until you want that. Like, if I had to walk out with six things, I would be like, all right, well, I'm just going to buy one. <laughs> or I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to go back to my hotel room to then just come back. And that dissuades me from, you know, and it's solving, wanting to do that. It's solving problems too. Like, Universal right now, uh, at least for Orlando, I'm sorry, not Orlando, uh, Hollywood, you have to go to a locker room and put your stuff there in order to ride so that, you know, your stuff doesn't fall out, right? Disney may not have that space for locker rooms. Disney also may not have big enough space, um, you know, on, on the actual, like, vehicles that you're riding for you to stuff, you know, your, your shopping stuff. So it's beneficial for them to say, actually, we want you to buy anything you want, and we'll create a whole service here that delivers mm-hmm. it. You don't have to worry about it so that you keep buying stuff for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, so, and that's a huge business goal that they have that, you know, Universal did it in a different way, and it may or may not promote more, more purchasing. So, yeah. To tie it back, because that's we took a lot from that whenever we were designing things like worlds for Riot to make sure that the the experience was immersive and really pulled you into the entire thing, so that you weren't like, oh, I'm in line, but do I want to like leave my spot in order to go buy some stuff? Just make it so that it was all easy. You could just quickly do it with your phone, do things like that. And uh, I remember when we were at the one in the worlds in Beijing, like having the AR come swooping in, the big dragon come swooping in. And you're watching it on the screen first, and you see a dragon come swooping in behind you, and you just instinctively yeah. look behind you, like, "Oh, what's yeah. that?" And like repeatedly throughout the entire thing, even if you know it's AR, yeah, boom, <laughs> it falls in there. Yeah. It's so immersive. There's gonna be in the future. There's gonna be biotic implants you can get in your eyes, and it's gonna incorporate <laughs> AR experiences like that to where you don't even have to look at the screen to see it. It's just in your in your world. In 50 One years, when we when we come back to talk about no more uh, gas, gas pumps and ACMs. We're going to talk about that too because we're all going to have, we don't even have to have webcams or anything. We're just all going to have the biotic eyes that, that do everything for us. And there's going to be no downside whatsoever and nothing bad can happen. <laughs> <laughs> there's a book that I recommend to a ton of other experienced designers just like, because it's a, such a great envisioning of the future. Is this book called, it's called Demon, D-A-E-M-O-N. Mm-hmm. And the whole premise of it is like this other world going on there where you have like, you know, this other world of uh, AI based things where there's an entire virtual world that's layered over the entire world and people can interact with that, use their own system of credibility and credits and everything like that, that that you could just walk around the world and not even see what people are doing because it's so integrated into all of it. And it's, it's such a good book. And the most fascinating bit about it, the premise of it is that when the book was written, I think in 2007, it only used technology that existed at the time. It just uses it entirely new ways, which is wonderful. Oh, mochi. She looks so grumpy. She's been staring. So every now and again, you'll see me like look down. That's because she was. All right, mochi. All right, I I get it, mochi. You need you need your people back. Okay, let's let's get into closing thoughts. Like I haven't been fed. This is a problem. <laughs> Real quick, we'll, we'll keep it short. Um. One minute answers. What is your biggest pet peeve in in the world of UX? UX equals UI. UX equals UI. 
Pet yeah, right peeve. Now, it doesn't. Right now, because um, there's a lot of designers, uh, UX designers that put UI designers under title, or UI designers that put UX designer under title. Um, there's cause. There's a lot of confusion and mis um, misconceptions of what like the role I think um, entails. And so, because you're seeing a lot UX UI, while there is a relation, like yeah, if there is a tangible thing that you are interacting with, chances are there's you have to do some UI design. Uh, but UX transcends UI. It's literally like it, it's applied in so many other ways, as explained earlier. Um, and so it gets really frustrating when you're at least from a very production heavy standpoint when you're in the very beginning of a product um, discovery phase and they're like all right cool but what can you wireframe and it's like i have to do research i have to understand like competitive analysis i have to understand like you know what the audience is where the needs are like you know what hypothesis we're trying to prove and validate um there's like a lot there that's like very sciencey and um an analysis and not drawing anything <laughs> and so and actually what's another misconception there is because they're focused on the um the artifact that you're providing which is a wireframe um, and it's very visual they think that that's like the product that you're pushing out like but really there's a lot of thinking that happens that gets to that point of me pushing a wireframe out to you and then for you to then implement in code and so um, the more work you do understanding ahead, like the, this whole like nebulous problem, um, the easier it is for you to use all that information and come up with a tangible, like, you know, visual interface solution, if that's your job, right? Or if it's a very experiential thing that requires more like, you know, uh, no UI, like that's, that's a thing too, right? Like, but, um, so there's like two components of that pet peeve. It's like UX equals UI is like something that I get really frustrated about because there's a lot of misconceptions that that gets carried, um, and then um, that idea that like user experiences only really do like um, wireframes and like visual tangible things. There's a ton of work that happens right before that wireframing and prototyping phase of our work. That's actually the strength of and the bulk of our work. Actually, all right. Yeah. All right, Chris. What about you? One of the big, yeah, one of the big running jokes that we always had in there is like, if you ever see a resume or a job description that says UX slash UI, that means they don't understand it. <laughs> They're just like, oh yeah, this is the buzzword, right? We'll just slap that on there, and it it generally means they don't really have an understanding of what's involved in it, and they're just like, oh yeah, we'll just make some wireframes, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I would say my biggest pet peeve is more the when something when it's not done properly, when there's not the research up front, at least there's always a way to make it happen with any time constraint, with any budget constraint to make that happen on there. And with with companies that don't really understand it, they might say, you know, like, all right, cool, we'll design all this stuff. Now we'll just slap some UX on there at the end. And at that point, there's nothing you can do. It's it's already baked. It's built. It needs to be something that's in the beginning. Like, are you even solving the right problem here? It's in the very beginning of the entire process and should be woven throughout the entire thing, where it's a skill set that regardless of what someone's doing on that PM encoding, anything like that, they have some understanding of it. So they at least know which questions to ask to get the right answers to to make things better. Yeah, it sort of goes back to what Vivi was saying about like the bad door designs where you have like kind of this very beautiful door and it's very intentionally made to be like excellent looking. 
and then the opening mechanism is like you have to like spin a, a whale's tail three times <laughs> You're like this is just <laughs> this is just really not great but it looks good but it's not great that's like going you know to use the three shells come on yeah, <laughs> yeah, three gonna... shells, yeah. it's like the skyrim puzzle where you have to turn the the three blocks to face a, a certain shape it's like th- that's what happens at least from my perspective that's probably what happens when you try to slap ux in at the very end of the project where you're like how can we make this actually functional <laughs> Oh, instead of three low. spins, it's two spins. <laughs> that saves that saves one whole spin oh, per thing. <laughs> Think of the time we've seen. recently. The uh, in the UX groups, there was I forget it was some Philips smart bulb, and in order to like access the special thing, it had this just ridiculously archaic. Like, I know what you're talking on, about. Like two seconds on, two seconds off, five seconds on, five, and like it's because there's no interface for it. Like it's such a horrible experience. <laughs> We're just so many better solutions they could have done. <laughs> the video for that, for for clarity, what Chris is talking about, is there a video on how to factory reset your Philips Smart Hue bulb or something like that, where it's like, and the lady does such a great job at the voiceover. She's like, to reset your bulb, please turn off for five seconds, on for three seconds, ah. off for five seconds, and this goes on for like a good minute and a half. <laughs> she's like, on for three seconds. <laughs> I'm like, what? How long? It's, it seems like a joke, like a parody of just like it a dystopian does. world, but no, it's real. Somebody <laughs> had to sit down. Somebody wrote that entire script for that video, and then the person had to sit down in the booth, in the voiceover booth, and be like, oh my god. <laughs> and then the editor has to sit down and like, oh. <laughs> Everyone knows <laughs> that this, this is point, a terrible a terrible thing. <laughs> at this point, I'm like, I'm just going to throw it away. Like, buy, like, I'll just buy a new one. It's just... <laughs> It's not worth it. All right, all right. Let's wrap up. We've been here for about two hours. Blair, or Vivi and Chris, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Uh, if you have anything you want to plug, now's the time. I know both of you are both kind of working on your own projects, but if you wanted to say, come check this out, now's the time. Go first. <laughs> uh, I don't I don't really have anything to plug right now on there. I think the probably the most recent thing would be I have a, a good friend who just recently published a book that I'm heavily featured in. I've talked a lot about stuff. It's called uh, What's Your Problem? To Solve Your Toughest Problems, Change the Problems You Solve. And it's, I, I'm very happy with that name. I like it. But it's all <laughs> it's about. It's a great name. Yeah, it's all about how to, I mean, it's about innovation. He's published several books through like Harvard Business Review on like how to innovate, do things like that. And this one is specifically focused on reframing so that you're actually thinking about whether you're solving the right problem or not. And I have a lot of my stories about like Stephen Hawking and other projects and stuff in there. It's you pick that up on Amazon? Yep. Awesome. So it's called What's Your Problem? It's on Amazon. Pick it up. <laughs> yeah, <we're saying>. yeah. <laughs> what about you, Vivi? I don't really have anything to um to go, say other go than play like, Dauntless. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, there's that. Um, if, if you like to um, kill monsters, um, we have some really cool ones <laughs> called Behemoth <laughs> Dauntless. Am I doing this right? <laughs> I don't know. Um, no, yeah. Like, complete Dauntless. Um, we're gonna have um, like I'm I'm working on a new feature. I'm really excited to test it out with players and see like how how we can um potentially create more um interesting social experiences for players. Um or slayers, as we call them. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty accessible, like, reachable on Twitter. Um, so it's the same. Uh, yeah, it's B-O-C-A-S-I-O-D. Down, down there um, somewhere. So, yeah, down somewhere in the <laughs> uh, on the, the channel. But, yeah, and then so 
if you have any questions about UX and games or even Dauntless, like please reach out to me. How do you say that, by the way? I know I will. What? What? Da- Your Dauntless? Twitter handle? No. <laughs> do you do you have a pronunciation for it? Vocasiad. Vocasiad. I mean, Ocasio is my last name, and the V is for Vivianet, and the D is because I originally was Ocasio de Jesus, and so um, that's actually like a Purdue University like <laughs> name that I just it just. That username is carried over. Like, I like never made that connection. <laughs> I never. I was like, then, I was sat. I'm looking at. Him, I'm like, I wonder why she has this name. I never made that connection. I'm so like dumb. Randomly there. <laughs> yeah. But after marrying this troll, <laughs> I, I can't believe I you did that. By the, the way. <laughs> you what now? I said I can't you believe you did that. Man. By the way. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I basically dropped the De Jesus part of my name and then um, got the Colvin part of my name, but. Because I'm too lazy about writing Vivianet Ocasio Colvin, I just go by Vivian Ocasio. <laughs> <laughs> and the D is just because, like, I, I miss that De Jesus uh, um, part of my identity. Um, but yeah, Vivian, uh, V Ocasio D is normally how I say it, um, just because it's, oh, it's a name. Yeah, um, if you're having trouble finding it, it I'll, I'll link it down in the, the podcast description and the, the YouTube video as well. So it'll be there. Also, the in game name um, for Dauntless is. Like Phoenix, it's P H X underscore Nebuluna, N U B U. Wait, N E B U L U N A. You will probably provide that as well. Yeah, I'll put that down there. Um, yeah, so check out BB on Twitter and and then Dauntless if you want to say hi. Uh, Chris doesn't actually have an updated Twitter. I tried to find one, but I think the only one I could find was some, uh, like I don't even know what he. It was like a, a ex, he was. It was odd because he was an experienced designer. But I think he was like talking about going and visiting places as experiences, oh. and his Twitter hasn't yeah. been active in like ten years or something. Um, yeah, so. no, that's yeah, very true. I've throughout doing ethnographic research all around the world, I've probably lived in about forty-five countries now, and I wrote about it quite a bit during that too. Oh, is that your Twitter? It was. Oh, okay. It's not been touched in many okay. years. <laughs> I was like, I couldn't figure out if it was you or not. I'm like, this it's the same at. But it, oh. Yeah, he joined TikTok way before it was cooler. <laughs> I was like, wait, Chris did? <laughs> Where it's like, how do I join? <laughs> Why am I not friends with you yet? <laughs> anyway, thanks both of you for coming on, taking taking your, your precious lovely time for to talk to me and Larry about user experience. And I hope the listeners got something out of it, because um, I know I sure did. And I appreciate everyone uh, who spent the time to sit down and, and talk to us about it. So if you want to watch the podcast on YouTube, youtube.com slash Nighthawk20,000. Uh, we try to do an episode every Wednesday, so you should be able to see a video up there every week or so, usually. And if you can't catch it live and you can't catch it on YouTube, check us out on uh, iTunes, Google Music, or sorry, soon-to-be Google Podcasts, and uh, Spotify. We're all on there, so if you want to listen, it's on there. Leave us a comment. Leave us a rating. Leave us a follow. Helps a lot with the show. And uh, as always, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And thanks for tuning in. Appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Thanks.